week, I decided to go to Boston because they were having a hurricane and I thought it would be awesome. Um, it was the worst hurricane ever. It blew for like, it blew at like 50 miles per hour for like 20 minutes and then it was fine the whole rest of the time. And it kind of stunk, but that was not the reason I went out there. The reason I went out there was to go see our Crosswalk Clinton campus in Clinton, Massachusetts. Yeah, man, we can give a shout out to them. Amazing people doing God's work out there. They meet in this cool old theater and it's, it's like, it's a weird spot, but it's super cool right in the downtown area. I, the only reason I say it's weird is because they let me back behind the stage and that's where nightmares come from. Um, the theater itself is cool, but behind the screen was a little frightening. Um, but it's just, they're doing such great work. So Gil and Bryant and the whole team out there, if you guys happen to be watching this, just praise God for what you're doing. Thank you so much for the amazing amount of work you put in. Because it's a, it's a setup, teardown kind of situation every single week. And they, I mean, they show up at 7 a.m. and they're there till 2 and they work incredibly hard. So we're just really blessed for them as they continue to grow as they're coming. Now, they've just started meeting um, weekly again, and so we're really excited for them as they continue to grow out there in Clinton, Massachusetts. And um, we're also looking forward to our Portland campus, hopefully um, going weekly October 2. So that's coming up, and I know they're getting ready for that. And uh, so, yeah, that's where I was last week. But didn't Pastor Andy do a phenomenal job? Wasn't he great? Man. I love the way that he broke out the scripture, and it's so incredible. We are really blessed with an incredible pastoral team here, all of which can step into this pulpit, this stage, I guess, um, j jump into this space and break open the word of God. So thank you for allowing us to be able to um, hire great people because they're quite amazing. Anyway, should we start? Let's start. We're in a series called Contrast, and we've been talking about the light that comes out of the darkness in some respects, right? And we've talked about, um, you know, empires versus kingdoms, and we've talked about grace versus law, as you know, and we've talked about all these different things. And what my hope is for you is that more than anything, you believe that we're loved by God, that you begin to understand or continue to understand or grow in the understanding that his grace is sufficient for us that the righteousness we are given comes from God, not from the work that we do, that we are not saved by what the law says, but by what Jesus did on the cross. There are all these different things. And now we're coming to the end of this letter. And don't forget, this is a letter, right? He's writing a letter to the church in Galatia or the churches in Galatia, because there may have been more than one, who were struggling very deeply with Jewish Christians who were trying to get them to to do those traditional things that they did while they were Jews to keep that identity. And Paul is saying, no, you have a new identity. You're a new creation. You're something completely different. And so he's beginning to wrap up this letter that he's written. And, um, and just so you know, we may do one extra week. Pastor Isai is preaching next week, which is awesome. We haven't heard from him in a long time because he's been working with the team so much. So we're really excited about him preaching, and he'll probably kind of wrap up the series just a little bit more. It'll be my 26th wedding anniversary next week. Yeah. So, so. cheer for her. It was easy for me, cheer for her. Um, but, we, you know, we had, we had a COVID 25th, and so it's this big one that's supposed to celebrate, and we we're like, nah, forget it. So, um, so I may not be here next week, if that's all right. But um, Pastor Isai is going to do it. But we're starting this chapter 6 in the book of Galatians. So turn with me now, if you will, because there's some important things that are about to be said. He begins like this, dear brothers and sisters. If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly 
She gently and humbly helped that person back into the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this text, and so we're going to spend a little time on this first verse. And I think right from the beginning, we can begin to understand that when he says, if another believer is overcome by sin, that there's other ways to translate that word overcome. It's a good translation. But another way to, to translate that particular word is surprised by sin. And that may seem strange, like why do you get surprised by sin? But it's in a passive voice. What that means in Greek is that this sin, like it kind of showed up in their lives. It didn't necessarily mean for it to happen. It's all of a sudden there. We're not talking about necessarily somebody who's chasing down sin. We're talking about somebody who finds himself or falls into sin and needs some help and needs some correction. But then this next piece says, you who are godly, that's a qualifier, right? It's not just anybody tells somebody else what to do in church. Let's be careful with that. It actually says, you who are godly. Now, what do we mean by that? And, and just so you know, this text has been used in, in great ways at times to help course correct people who are falling off the path that God has for them. And sometimes it's been used by churches to punish people in what we call church discipline, right? And it's, at times that can be done very poorly and it can be done by spiritually immature people who don't handle it the way Paul is asking you to handle it. So it's important that we break down these words because what he's talking about when he says those, those who are godly in this particular translation, or in some translation it says those who are spiritual, the Greek word is a fun word to say. It's the pneumatikoi, right? Which sounds like some really cool tribe somewhere, right? The pneumatikoi are coming. This is the spiritual ones, all right? And, and there's a couple ways to look at this particular phrase that he put together in this text. And, and Paul is known to do this. So one way to look at this text is that it's sarcastic, right? Sarcastically, he's saying it, and it would sound like this, right? In effect, he would have been saying, listen to me, those of you who think you're so spiritual, you talk as though you swallowed the Holy Ghost, feathers and all. If you're so spiritual, then demonstrate your spirituality by acting responsibly and lovingly with your fallen brothers and sisters. And it's possible that this is the way he was saying it. However, he just referenced, right, this, this list of, um, the list of fruits of the Spirit. He just referenced this in, in chapter 5. And so it's possible that he's actually being really positive when he says this. When he says those who are spiritual are identical to those Christians who walk in the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit, and who keep step with the Spirit, who are constantly seeking the Spirit, Spirit's guidance in their lives. And so you may be saying, well, wait a second, what are we talking about here? We're saying that there's different levels of Christianity, and it's interesting that you should say that, even though I said it. Um, what's interesting is that in some early Methodist church registers, they contain three different categories or columns for listing those persons who attended services of worship, right? The seekers, the saved, and the sanctified. And I just think, as a pastor of a church, how impossibly long it would take to categorize you in one of these three places. So thank goodness we don't do that. But Paul is talking about something, and it's something important. Paul is talking about the spiritually mature. That is what he seems to be saying at this point. 
That some are spiritually mature and some are in more of a growth pattern. And by the way, spiritual maturity isn't a spot you get to. It's a continued journey understanding what faith is, understanding what spirituality is and how it expresses itself in our lives. But it's a lot, right? So what does being spiritually mature look like? And I got to tell you, um, while there are hallmarks to being spiritually mature, I'm just listing three or four. There's literally, literally dozens of different hallmarks of spiritual maturity. And what's interesting is that it's not really for us to say where other people are on that spiritual, spiritual maturity scale, which, by the way, there are scales for this. But it, it does behoove us to think about where we are. So here's just a few things that I think are particular for today's world that are probably important for Christians to understand. Spiritual maturity, it is not easily threatened, right? We understand that gentleness is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, and it cannot coexist with a harsh and censorous spirit, right? Sometimes we go after each other in church with a harsh spirit. Furthermore, it's not easily threatened because it's full of vigilance and self-examination, which are prerequisites Right? Especially if you're going to be a restorer, somebody who helps bring people back on the path. Right? We have to have a great deal of self-examination so it's not easily threatened when somebody comes at us. Not only is it not threatened, that threat does not easily provoke us. It understands that not everyone is spiritually mature, so it is not goaded into a fight or argument easily. Right? And we all know people like this. We all know people who seem to be long-suffering, right? There's some way that they can handle the people that you would lose everything on. Am I right? And you look at those people and you go, I don't know how they do it. I can tell you how they do it. They're spiritually mature. They know how to take a step back. They know how to not be threatened when somebody says something that they don't necessarily agree with. Right? And one of the reasons why is because spiritual maturity is quick to love. Because love becomes the first instinct, listening rather than speaking, trying to understand, knowing that a win for the Holy Spirit is not just being right, but a win for the Holy Spirit is gaining understanding and growing together. And that's hard sometimes. But spiritual maturity also understands boundaries. Sometimes the spiritually mature understand when it's time to stop the conversation, when it's no longer becoming beneficial, when it's no longer expanding the kingdom of God, but it is now doing damage to those who are in the midst of this argument and understanding that. It's really important that we know this because there is such a thing as being abused spiritually. And spiritual, spiritually mature people are looking out for that. Which is why they're the ones who really, if they're going to help someone get back on the path, it's not church discipline, it's love, right? It's bringing people back to the way God would have them go if they find themselves in sin. And Paul continues this thought, but he doesn't continue it like in the discipline vein, he continues it in the love vein because that's what it should be. He says, listen, share each, other bur share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. The Greek word for burden is heavy weight or stone. So what he's saying is we literally pick up what others cannot or what is crushing them. 
And then he says, by the way, this is the law of Christ. If you haven't gotten anything out of the book of Galatians, you should understand that the law of Christ is love. But in this text, he recognizes that there's the reality of the burdens that we carry. All Christians have them. And we all need each other. And I got to tell you, I think Satan is having a heyday right now in the way that we communicate with one another. He likes nothing more than a divided church. And he may not divide you on Christ, but he's going to divide you in every other part of your life so you find it actually difficult to worship with people that don't agree with you. And then, if we're not spiritually mature, we say things online or in person during the week, and now we got to go worship with these people that we were just losing it on in the rest of our life, in the, the other part of our life. Spiritually mature people understand that it's all connected. And so they watch what they say on a Thursday because they know on Sabbath they got to worship with somebody. And they don't want to do damage to that person's spiritual walk over an idea. Paul also is recognizing here that there's a myth of self-sufficiency. Right now, if you've ever read any Stoic philosophy, which is kind of an, I wouldn't say it's an interest of mine, but like it's, it's sort of interesting to read Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. There's some really interesting writing around Stoic philosophy, but Stoic philosophy has a tendency to lean very heavily on self-sufficiency. Now, there's nothing wrong with self-sufficiency. However, the myth of self-sufficiency says that I don't need anybody else. And it's not a mark of bravery. But for those of us in community, understand that the myth of self-sufficiency is a sign of pride. And Paul actually recognizes this in the next verse by essentially saying, if you think you're too good to help people, you're not too good to help people. But he's also leaning into the imperative of mutuality, right? Paul speaks most profoundly of this idea of mutuality, the idea that we are in this together in 1 Corinthians. And there's also that, and it's probably summed up easily in the African proverb, which says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. But this is how he says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, this makes for harmony among the members so that all members care for each other. Right? There's an effect of caring for one another. It creates harmony. It's, a, it's like Paul is daring you. He's saying, I dare you to bear each other's burdens because he knows that the world will get better. It will get a little lighter. He says, if one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Luther said it this way, Christians should have broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burden of his brothers and sisters. I, I think this is beautiful. Because again, it speaks to that spiritual and mature understanding that everything's connected. And then Paul says it this way in Galatians 6, 3. He says, listen, if you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're just not that important. I told you, Paul can be sarcastic at times. This is humbling, right? Don't think so much of yourself. Let's make sure that we understand that there is nothing that we are too good for when it comes to helping our brothers and sisters. But then he changes tone a little bit in the next verse. And he says, now pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. And you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Right? The, the word is dikamatsu, which means, which means to test your work and see that it is pure. And, and then Paul gets almost prophetic, right? 
he says, you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. And I know, I know I sound like I hammer on social media a lot, and I apologize for that, because as a, as a, as a general neutral tool, it's not a huge deal. But if you, look at, if you look at what you find yourself doing oftentimes, and maybe it's just me, so if you don't recognize this, this I'm just speaking from my own experience and my own bias. You, you look time and time again at what other people are doing, and it creates discontent, it creates jealousy, it creates unhappiness. In the life that you're living, the life that God gave you, the gift of you being exactly where you are, right? Because we have a tendency to think, well, if only I had that, if only I could see that. They look like they're having so much fun. Why are we not having, you look at your family, you're like, why are we not having so much fun? And they look at you like, you're not that fun. And you're like, yeah, but I know that guy, he's not that fun either. Why does he look like he's having fun? Because he takes better pictures than you. Right? I understand that social media is not evil. I think it's being used for evil means right now, absolutely. But I also understand like the technology of it. it you know, it's a, it's a, it can bring people together. It can be a great thing. I'm just saying, Paul seems prophetic here and saying, stop, stop measuring yourself up to someone else. And even though we take care of each other, he says, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. We are each also responsible to carry our own load. Now, what is he talking about? Because it sounds like he's just contradicting what he just said. I get that. I understand why that's a little confusing. But he's using two different words. Right? When he says carry someone else's burden, he's saying carry a heavy burden that they can't carry for themselves. But then when he says carry your own, be responsible for your own conduct, essentially he's saying carry your own burden. It's actually a different word completely. It's the only time it's actually used in Scripture. This idea that the load that you carry for yourself, that one's different. Um, a, great, a great piece of advice comes from Candace Millard. She tweeted this out. She said, my advice, there's a way to think about this, right? My advice, for what it's worth, for success and happiness is compete with yourself and root for everybody else, right? Compete with yourself, think about yourself, think about what God has given you to do, and root for everybody else. This should happen in your life. This should definitely happen in the church. We should root for other churches when they're succeeding. Praise God for it. We should never talk ill of other churches around if we don't have to, right? There's, and we, we don't really have to. There's no reason to. We need to celebrate what God is doing in there. We root for everybody. If somebody's got something, somebody gets a promotion that you really hoped you for, try, you know, hope you would get, try rooting for them rather than being frustrated by them. John Stott said it this way, to kind of break down the idea of carrying somebody else's burden and then being responsible for your own. John Stott, the theologian, said it this way, so we are to bear one another's burdens, which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. But there's one burden which we cannot share, indeed do not need to share, because it is a pack light enough for every man to carry himself. And that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack and I cannot carry yours. But I wish you would have said one more thing. I wish you would have said, the pack is light because it's already been carried to its destination through Jesus. Yeah. I wish you would have reminded us of that. Because what happens is we get concerned about that judgment. But you remember, judgment happened on the cross. Right? All that judgment, all the judgment that you ever needed or was ever needed for you was taken care of on the cross. Right, so that burden that we carry, that's light. And Jesus said it, and we say it again. There's two different loads that are mentioned. And then Galatians 6.6, 6, 
those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers sharing all good things with them. This feels like it doesn't belong there. Am I right? There's no reason that he's talking about carrying each other's loads and then he's like, by the way, you should pay your teachers. That's what he's saying. He's like, you should take care of your pastors. I really like this text. I think it's wonderful. So in the Greek, new paragraph. So he's starting another thought. He doesn't give it a lot of, he doesn't give it a lot of break. He starts another thought, right? So new paragraph, new thought. Um, this is not an uncommon theme for Paul. Paul speaks to this particular situation for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was constantly raising money for the people in Jerusalem because that was a very poor church. So he was constantly raising money for them. And Paul liked to eat like many of us do. And he knows that the teachers who were committed to teaching the word of God all the time need to be taken care of by the church. It feels weird that he put it in here because I really think this. I think Paul had a little bit of difficulty with the myth of self-sufficiency. Like he really liked to take care of stuff because he often reminded us like, I, I, can, I can build tents, right? Like I don't need your stuff. But then he would be like, but other people do. Um, I think he had a hard time asking for money. So in the middle of his stream of thought, he's like, well, I'm talking about burdens. Hey, let me throw this one in here too. And then he doesn't say anything else about it, right? He just like throws it in there, said those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. That's it. And then he goes back to what he was talking about before. So I think Paul just like very humanly was like, I should, I should put an offering call right in the middle of this text. Is there a connection today? Yes, there is. Um, of course, right? It seems obvious. But I'll tell you this, it is, as a pastor, it is sometimes hard to talk about, hey, giving. I mean, we have it in the service and that sort of thing. We don't do sermons on giving because we believe that you know, know what that is. Um, I like to approach it this way. I'm so grateful for the way that you continue the work of God through Crosswalk Church by giving consistently. You guys are amazing. And it's allowed us to, to weather this pandemic powerfully, but it also allows us, this is what I want you to understand, when you give, and hopefully you understand how we give here through the Seventh-day Adventist Church and through Crosswalk, right? Your local offering stays here. The tithes that you give, when you write tithe on the check, goes to the global church, and it supports the global work, which is great, as well as the money that stays here going to support the local work, which is great as well. We need both of those things given to, right? But what I want you to understand is the, when you give, it allows us to in kind of an organized fashion, help lift one another's burdens, right? And I know like we t we've talked a lot about, we've talked a lot about like HVAC units, air conditioning units, right? Last month we spent $71,000 on air conditioning units. I'd like that to just sink in for a moment. $71,000 on air conditioning units. But all that allows us to do the actual work of carrying each other's burdens. Right? That's what it's for. And I understand there's a cost, there's an economy to this, and I don't want to get stuck in this. I apologize. But, but um, I'm really grateful for the way that you allow us to do the work so we don't have to worry about, man, can we keep a room cool enough so people can hear the word of God? We don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because of the way that you've given. So all that to say, thank you. I appreciate it. And I usually don't put this in the middle of the sermon, but Paul did it, so it's his fault. <laughs> all right? All right. Because it's weird that he throws it in there because then he says this, don't be misled or do not be deceived. You cannot mock God. It's like, what? It's like, it's like you're having a conversation with somebody over the table and, and you ask them a question and they don't answer it, but they say something else ridiculously and then go right back to answering it. And you're like, we need, wait, we need to talk about what you just said. 
I'm like, what? No, never mind. Let's go. I'm like, okay. So he jumps right back into it to what is what I would argue a pretty significant text, right? Don't be misled. Don't be deceived. You cannot mock God. And you will always harvest what you plant, right? He says three aphoristic or, or clear statements here. He says, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. Reap what you sow. Let's talk about that God can't be mocked for a moment here. Um, two things. Number one, he's talking to a group of Christians, right? So there's, he's saying to a group of Christians, God cannot be mocked. I'm constantly amazed when people get really upset when unbelievers mock God. I'm not sure what you were expecting. They don't believe in God, right? And so Christians get all up in arms and say, how can you talk about God that way? And he's like, I'm talking about some, you know, it's like a median oftentimes, right? I was listening to Ricky Gervais, who clearly doesn't like the idea of God. And at first I was like, Ugh, and then I thought, no, that's on point for him. Why am I all so upset? Because when you look at this word, the word mock means to turn your nose up to, literally, that's the word. And we all know what that's like, right? When you say something to somebody and they turn their nose up, like, mm, I don't think so, right? And if you don't know somebody, it's you, <laughs> right? If you don't know somebody who does that, it's you. Somebody rolls their eyes when you say something. This is what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who don't believe in God. He's talking about believers in God. So let's ask this question. How do we mock God? How do we as believers mock God? Not unbelievers, believers. A couple ways. Number one, we fall, we mock God by falling into legalism, by denying the power of the cross to save us, and trying to save ourselves by the law. This is what Paul's been talking about all throughout Galatians. We mock God when we go, you know what, the cross, that was pretty good, but turning my nose up, that's the literal illustration, but I think I know better, right? That's a way that we mock God. We mock God by wearing a different yoke and claiming that it's God's yoke. And, and, and I've been talking about this for a while, right? I've been talking about identity, Christian identity. What is your identity in Christ? What is the label that you carry on yourself? And a few weeks ago, we talked about the yoke that you carry, right? What you put around, the burden you put around by, the, by who you follow. And, and Paul said it, I am only going to put one yoke around my neck, and that's the yoke of Jesus Christ, right? When we put a different yoke on and say that it's Jesus, we mock God. I want you to understand that. And that's really important to understand because there's a lot of stuff going around in the world right now that claims Christianity but certainly doesn't sound, feel, act, smell, or, or treat people like Christ would. So please be careful when we understand what yoke we're putting on and what we call it. By believing the law of God is anything less than love, right? This is a pretty strong indictment of what's happening in Galatians right now because Paul is saying God will not be mocked you're not going to pretend like what he did on the cross didn't matter, those of you who are believers in Galatia. So believing that the law of God is anything less than love and that it's something that we have to enforce on other people other than loving other people, that's mocking God. And it's been said again and again and again in Galatians and all over the New Testament. So please don't forget. Then Galatians 6, 8. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. You reap what you sow. He's coming back to that. He's also referencing that list of sins, and he's referencing that list of the fruits of the Spirit of which there is no law against. Galatians 6, 9. So let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest 
of blessing if we don't give up. And I got to tell you, God's, God's at just the right time is never your time. It's never early. It always feels like it's too late, but it's always on his calendar. And this is why he says, so let's not get tired of good doing good at just the right time. Like, it's all going to come to fruition. Don't worry about it at just the right time. And then he says, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. And then he kind of brings it home and says, especially to those in the family of faith. Like, we understand it's hard sometimes and we're fighting. What Paul's been talking about here is he's been talking about the spiritually mature versus the spiritually immature. And we were recently moving, um, and we, we, we had bought my mom's home, um, so we kicked her out. And um, it's not true. She has a place to live. She's not a homeless person. Um, but, but we were moving, and, and she kind of pieced out, like, okay, I'm leaving, and left all her stuff in her house. So we're moving our stuff into her house, which was a little tiny bit smaller than our house, so we had to go through stuff. So we're going through everything, and my parents kept everything. Your parents probably did too, right? They kept everything. So we're going through files, and you know what I found? I found letters I had written them when I was 13 years old. You want to talk about the most painful thing you can ever do? Read a letter you wrote when you were 13 years old. Right, because you were not mature when you were 13 years old, even though you thought you were. And by the way, it's worse if you wrote poetry. <laughs> and I did. So I, I found this file of poetry that apparently I'd given my parents as a gift, as if anyone would want that. And so I started reading it. Um, one of the most painful things in my life, my wife kept saying, what are you reading? I'm like, nothing because you will no longer respect me, <laughs> right? And, and so I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing poetry, and I'm writing poetry about faith, and I'm writing poetry about how I feel, and, you know, girlfriends, and all this, and it's horrible. And I found one that, um, that my dad decided to grade. <laughs> I thought, he was a professor, so he had red pins, and I was asking all these questions in this poem. And he, I thought it was grading. As I looked at it, I realized he wasn't grading it. He was answering it. Right? So the questions I was asking, he was answering. I'd never seen this before. I don't know if he gave it to me when I was 13. And I, but at some point, he spent the time to write an answer to it. They weren't, they weren't long answers. But they were coming from somebody who deeply cared about me. You know, we, we pray, and in our spiritual immaturity, we probably throw a lot out there to God that doesn't have a lot of answers, or at least we don't think they do. And sometimes we don't hear back from Him. And so we don't know what a spiritually mature person would say or ultimately what God would say. So we thought we'd bring you a song today that may speak to this. <laughs> 